Amen. Well, good morning, Mission Valley family. I know it's been a long time since I last spoke. I believe the last time I was here was Church in the Park, and believe it or not, that was probably my first or second week into seminary school. Now I am one week away from finishing my first semester, and I'm very happy to be almost done. Thank you, thank you. And I want to welcome everyone to church. If you do not know who I am, my name is Michael Fukuyama. I am the, the youth pastor of our FLOW program, and I'm very excited to be here. And I seem excited, but I also should be demonstrating peace, because that's what we're going to be talking about. And so today we're going to be going over Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, and I'm going to be putting up the NRSV version because my master's program has been very insistent on us seminary students looking at the NRSV instead of the NIV. So you're just going to have to bear with me if a different translation, but it's not that different, okay? So the question I want to ask everyone here today is, how can we experience peace in our life? Now, I specifically did not put a situation of chaos or sadness because I believe you can experience peace in any situation and not just one particular area in your life. Now, I want you guys to close your eyes and I'm gonna give you this question. What does peace look like to you? When you're having a hard day at work, when you're frustrated when things aren't going your way, what does peace look like to you? Where does your mind go? Maybe for some of you, you guys are on a lake, you're fishing besides still waters. Maybe some of us are in the beaches of Hawaii with a nice shaved ice in our hand, looking at the sea turtles, looking at the sun. Maybe some of us are in the mountains in a cabin where it's snowing, and we're inside drinking hot cocoa and just thinking, wow, this is beautiful, right? But wherever that is, that's what you guys classify as peace, right? Now, I want you guys to open up your eyes, and now we're back to reality, right? You're not where you want it to be. But what I want to talk about is that this peace is temporary, right? We can't always go to the place where we want to go, where we get away from work, or when we get away from school, or when we're just going through a hard time, right? We can't always go to that place. But spiritually, we can. Spiritually, we can achieve the peace that is better than just a temporary peace that's at the beach or by a lake, or maybe a peace that's quiet or a peace that's relaxing, and that's what I want us to take away from today is that we don't have to just lean on temporary peace, but there is something that is eternal, which is God's peace. If you turn to me to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 30, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary has no idea why Gabriel is approaching her. She has no idea what kind of favor this is, right? If this were to happen to us, if the same words came out of Gabriel's mouth to us, some of us might be thinking, oh, God is going to give me the raise that I deserve. God is going to give me a promotion. Or maybe God is going to give me that job I was applying for. Maybe for our students who are listening, maybe 
God is, or maybe you're hoping that your exam is going to get canceled or your homework's going to get canceled, right? Because, again, Gabriel mentioned to Mary that she had found favor, okay? Now, usually when God or an angel of God approaches someone, it is because someone is in, is in need, they are grieving, they are requesting something, or they're in pain, right? You see this with Abraham, with Job, Moses, right? These people are requesting something or they're going through something which requires God to intervene. But with Mary, we can assume that her life was pretty much carefree. We don't know, well, actually, we do know that she was not requesting for God's presence. We can just imagine Mary being just Mary, just strolling through her supermarket, right? She, she, she's living alive. Nothing's happening to her, nothing bad, right? And so this is what is going through Mary's mind right now is that what did what is going to happen? Like, what did I do to deserve this greeting? And this brings us to our first point, which is in order to experience peace, we must place our trust in God. Moving on to verses 31 through 33, it says, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Before I dive into this, I want to educate everyone on what is happening. This is what we call an annunciation narrative, where God is telling someone that they're going to give birth to a child. Okay? That's one example. Another example is when God names the child himself or tells the parent what to name the child. Another example of the Annunciation narrative is when God closes and opens the womb of barren women or women who had conceived, okay? And what that does is demonstrates God, God's power in those moments, telling us that God is powerful beyond science, that God is capable of doing all these things, now, diving into what is happening in, this, in these verses is that Mary is not expecting this news, right? For again, most of us probably would have expected something that is in line with our plan. Mary being told that she's going to give birth to not only a son, but the Savior of the world is probably the last thing on her plate, which, which she, not, she did not expect, right? Think about the last time you heard news even remotely close to the magnitude of this. The answer is probably never, right? And so for Mary, she's like, I'm, I'm a virgin. Like, I was not even expecting a kid. How is this possible, right? And so this is where Mary's trust comes into play. Verses 34 through 38, it says, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. From nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I, the servant of God. Let it be with me according to your word then the angel departed from her. So keep in mind, this annunciation narrative or the announcement from Gabriel was not a public statement, right? This conversation was only between the angel Gabriel and Mary, 
okay? So what are some things that Mary might be thinking of? Well, one, we know that now what's on her mind is that she's going to have a kid, which is, is going to be the most important child in the history of mankind. But also there are other moving parts to this, right? Because Mary is a virgin, and it's explicitly said that she's a virgin, if she goes out and tells people this, they're not going to believe her. They're going to probably think, well, clearly you cannot be a virgin if you're going to have a son, right? Because back then, Mary was the only person who had experienced this type of divine intervention. When people struggled having kids back then, they would pray to God and God would open their womb. But God is creating Jesus inside of Mary's womb while still being a virgin, okay? But to people, they might view her as a prostitute. Some might think that she has committed adultery. She's not married to Joseph yet, but they're engaged, so Joseph is her fiance. But the penalty or the consequence for committing adultery, even when you are engaged, was death by stoning. So now Mary's thinking, what if people don't believe me? People might think I'm a prostitute. People might think I've committed adultery against Joseph. I don't want to die. And the other moving part here is that Mary was only 13. That is most definitely very young for our standards, okay? That is very young. But back then, women married between the ages of 15 and 17. And then they were having kids between the ages of 18 and 35. So in perspective, it's not that young. But Mary was still ahead of her time. She was still pretty early on with this process, right? Because women were marrying between the ages of 15 and 17. They weren't giving birth between 15 and 17. Mary was going to give birth at the age of 13. But notice Mary's response here in verse 38. She says, then Mary said, here I am, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Mary, there's a sense of peace, right? Mary has a sense of peace in this response. She's not challenging Gabriel. She's not frustrated at Gabriel or God. She said, let it be. Let it be in accordance to your word. I want to reference another famous story with, with Jesus, and that's Jesus calming the storm when his disciples are in the boat. This is not up here, but if you want to turn to Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27, this is the famous story of when the disciples and Jesus, they're in a boat, and they encounter a storm, okay? And if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to, I'll go over it briefly, but basically what is happening is that the disciples, they're, on the, they're out in the lake or the ocean with God, and all of a sudden a storm, a storm hits, okay? So the disciples, they're freaking out. They're probably thinking, we're, we're in, a, we're in a, a big storm or hurricane. We're going to die. Like, what's going on? Like, this wasn't planned. Like, this wasn't supposed to happen. And guess what Jesus is doing? He's sleeping during this storm. Jesus is asleep. Like, just imagine Jesus in a deep sleep, right? That peaceful sleep. That's probably what Jesus was experiencing. But the disciples, they're running around like chickens without a head. They have no idea what to do. And so their last resort is to go to Jesus. So they wake up Jesus. And just imagine if someone woke you up from a peaceful sleep. You're probably going to be mad. You're probably going to be angry, right? And so Jesus wakes up and he says, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, which were completely calm. So in this moment, what had happened was that the disciples forgot who, the, who they were in the presence of. 
They weren't in the presence of just a regular average man. They were in the presence of the Prince of Peace, right? They forgot that. They, they took their eyes off of Jesus and got scared. They allowed chaos to enter their lives. They allowed stress to enter their lives because they did not have faith in Jesus and that Jesus would protect them, that Jesus would provide them with the peace that he could experience as he was sleeping on this, on this boat. I mentioned this, I, be, I mentioned this when, I, when I gave a sermon in Church in the Park and how I was struggling with seminary. I mentioned how one of my biggest fears was that I wasn't good enough. I mentioned that my classmates, some of them are older than me, some of them very evidently way more intellectual than me. These people were scholars. And that was one of the things that was keeping me from really going all into seminary was me telling God, I'm not cut out for this. I can't draw biblical knowledge like my, my fellow classmates can. Like, I don't think I can do this. So I was stressed out. Because of that, that led me to feel like I had to prove myself. I had to perform the most perfect sermons in class. I'd have to give the most perfect essays or complete the, or get, turn in the most uh, perfect assignments because I needed to show my, or prove to people that I belong here, right? But I just remember I was, I felt like I was living life at 100 miles per hour. And I remember texting my friend, telling her that, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. How am I supposed to balance a full-time job while being a full-time seminary student and, try, and, and learn something, or at least be alive without being burnt out? And I remember my friend telling me that it's, Michael, like, life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. But at that moment, I realized that I was living life, especially my Christian life, as a sprint. Because another reason why I was struggling with, this, with me being in my Master's of Divinity program was because of the time frame. I didn't trust God at the time because I wanted to go my own route. For those, of who, for those of you who don't know, the Masters of Divinity is an average of three to four years. The program I was enrolled in before, which is the MAPS, Masters of Pastoral Studies, is only a half, one and a half years to two years. It is significantly cheaper, and also I wanted to you know, get married in that time span, start my life, get a full-time job as a pastor. So there were a lot of moving parts for me that I wasn't at peace with. I was stressed. I was overwhelmed. And I remember a week later after I gave that sermon, we did devotions in the park with our staff at Lacey Park. And I remember just sitting down on the bench and just opening myself to God. God, I don't think I can do this. I am not at peace with myself. I don't know how you expect me to be a pastor. I don't think I, I'm, I don't think I can do this. And in that moment, God spoke to me. I remember very vividly God telling me, Michael, you're not in seminary to prove people wrong. You're not in seminary to get the best grades. You're not in seminary because you think that that's what's best for you. You're in seminary because I've called you to be a pastor and that's it. You have lost sight of the real reason why I, I was in seminary. And then I got flashbacks of my friends. I got visions of, uh, I, I got visions of, of images I haven't seen. And, you know, and one of the images that I got was a picture of me, my girlfriend, and then there was a, a child on my shoulders. Uh, I'm not speculating anything, but I just want to make that totally clear, okay? But again, a, a huge reason as to why I was struggling is because you know, as soon as I finished graduate school, like I want to propose, like I want to get engaged. 
right? The, the, the sooner I can get this done, I feel like, okay, I can, be, I can be at peace with all my responsibilities finished. But what God was trying to tell me is that, Michael, regardless if you finish next year or in six years, the results are still going to be the same. You're still going to be a pastor in six years, right? You're still going to be a pastor. You're, st- you know, you're still going to propose, hopefully. You know, hopefully I have kids, right? But the outcome is going to be the same. So you need to stop trusting in yourself and trust in me. And as soon as I had those words from God, as soon as I had those images and, and vision, it almost seemed like everything was going right in the world. I was at peace with myself. And then the next 10 years, oh no, sorry, excuse me, 10 weeks of sem- seminary school, it's, it's felt like 10 years, the next 10 weeks of seminary school have gone by extremely, yeah, it is, has gone by extremely fast because of how I was able to trust in God. I, I figured out what it looked like to trust in God. And that's why the past 10 weeks of the semester have gone by extremely quick because I was able to trust God and able to let go. My next point is to, in order to experience peace, we must give up our need to control our lives. I'm going to go over the same set of verses, which is 34 through 38, so I'm not going to read it, but I want to give different perspective on it. So we know that Mary responded with a peaceful answer, right? She said, let it be, here I am. But also in the first line, which is verse 34, she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? No doubt was she experiencing thoughts of being shocked or astonished of this. Again, she is a virgin. Having a kid is most likely or was the last thing on her mind at the time. And even back then, having a kid while being a virgin was basically impossible, right? It defined everything people knew back then of what it looked like to have a kid beyond God opening and closing the womb, right? This was a whole new situation. And so I believe if we go to the, there are some things I highlighted within these verses, and I highlighted the word, or the words, thank you, will, right? I highlighted the words will, because in this situation, God, or Mary has no control over the situation. She does not. She doesn't have a say on what the child will be named, whether or not she wants the child, right? God is telling her, this will happen, And even in the previous verses, when you look back, there's a lot of wills as well. I didn't put them on there, but specifically for here, you see that God is telling Mary, you don't have a choice. This will happen, right? And oftentimes, for us, we we feel like we can only experience peace when we're in control. We can only experience peace when our plans are going our way, when everything we have committed is going exactly the way we planned it to go. Right. But in Proverbs verse 16, or excuse me, chapter 16, verses 3 through 4, it says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. See, I struggle with control. I'm a planner, right? Planners, they're strategic. They want to control certain things on how they go, whether you're going on a trip, whether you're you're planning out your day, right? If things don't go according to what I have planned, I feel like I'm in a sense of chaos. I feel like I have no power over the situation. I feel like I'm at, at a loss. And I just feel like everything in life is not going as planned, right? Even with cooking, I love to cook because I can control the flavors. I don't like using the oven because as soon as you put your food in the oven, I have no control over what happens in the oven, right? 
But when I use a cast iron to use steak, I basically have control of every aspect of that meal. That's why I like cooking so much. But that's not how God wants us to live life, right? Because if we are in control of our lives, we're basically saying that God doesn't. We're basically saying that our plan is better than God's. But the problem with that is that the more control we have in our lives, the less peace you're going to experience, right? The more control you have of your life, the less peace you're going to have in your life. And it's because you're not allowing God to take control of that life. You're not submitting control to God. The things in life that you want to go perfectly, you're not giving that up to God, right? But what Mary is doing here in response is saying, let it be, right? She does not have control over the birth of Jesus. She has no idea the outcome. She just has the news, but she is saying, let it be. She is giving up control, right? Her life is gonna change drastically, but it's for the better. When was the last time God said, give control to me and your life is gonna be terrible? Never, because God doesn't operate like that, right? The third point is, in order to experience peace, we need to invite God into every aspect of our lives. So we're gonna fast forward into verses 46 through 53. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Or he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So now we get more insight on how Mary's responding. And specifically what this passage was titled was Mary's Song of Praise. Why do we pray every day? Why do we worship before service? Why do we worship after service? Because it is an invitation to allow God to work with us, whether it's through our day or through the service, we are inviting God into our hearts by opening our hearts during worship or by praying, right? What Mary is doing here is positioning herself to invite God in the next unforeseen future. She's praising God. She's not referencing her position right now, but she's referencing things in the Old Testament as well because she knows, God, she, know, she knows that God will deliver. She knows that God will provide her with the peace needed in order to move forward, regardless of what people may think of her, that she is okay with the situation because of the way she has invited God into her life. Now, in this point, I want to talk about what are ways we can invite or embrace God where we are, right? I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 through 13, which is another famous Jesus passage with Peter and Jesus on water. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and and beginning to sink, he cried out, 
Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So this passage is very similar to the other Jesus and the 12 disciples passage, okay? The, the, the Peter, or the 12 disciples, when they're on the lake, they think they see a ghost, but it's Jesus walking on water. But notice here, who is the object of peace, or the symbol of peace? It's Jesus, right? But what Jesus does here is invite Peter to experience his peace, because he is saying, Peter, come walk, right? And so Peter, he starts walking on the water. His eyes are focused on Jesus, but what distracts him? It's the wind. So as soon as Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts sinking. Many of us are like that. Some of us, we walk toward Jesus, but we're easily distracted by things outside of God, right? Maybe there's a natural disaster, COVID, or the loss of a loved one, we're frustrated, we're angry. There's a lot of things that, we can, that can distract us from keeping our eyes on Jesus, right? And that's why Jesus is saying to Peter, you have little faith, why did you doubt? It's because Peter doubted that Jesus, or, or excuse me, Peter doubted Jesus' ability to have him walk on water to the very end, right? Now, some of us are saying that we love Jesus. Some of us are saying a very routinely prayer, but our eyes are not on Jesus, right? I can very well if Jesus is that Christmas tree over there, I can just say, I love Jesus and walk right off the stage, right? Sometimes we're just doing it because we feel like we have to, or we're doing this because it's routine. But we need to be able to keep our eyes on Jesus to experience that peace, that what we do outside of the church is a reflection of Christ, right? That even when we get distracted, we know that God is going to be there. When we start sinking, what did Jesus do to Peter? he immediately reached out to him. He didn't wait 30 seconds. He didn't wait till Peter was on the brink of death. He immediately reached out to Peter, and that's what Jesus is going to do to us. That's what God is going to do to us. When we have, experience, when we have situations of chaos, when we're not at peace, we need to be able to, one, trust in God, give up control, but also invite God into our lives so that we can be at peace with our situation, right? That we need to be able to give up this control, feeling like I need to have a handle over the things that go in my life, the things that, that don't go as well. I need to be in control of that, but no. And the moment we start sinking, the good news is that Peter, or excuse me, Jesus and God are going to be right there. They're going to grab you. Yes, you might feel convicted, and you might get the saying, why did you doubt me? But they're all, Jesus and God are always going to reach out and save you. Another form, of, oh, another form of peace that we can, or another way we can invite peace into our lives is Sabbath. Now, how many of us actually take a Sabbath? Right? I feel like Sabbath is, is, at least for me, it is something we know exists, but we don't really take. Especially for me growing up, like, you know, I had friends that if I told them that, oh, I, I, I'm able to take a Sabbath, they would be like, Michael, like, why? Right? Because I was, you know, just taught by culturally, Work, 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 right, right, all these things. And, and, and the, the issue with that is it causes burnout. But the Sabbath is not for us to just sleep on a day that we make Sabbath. 
Sabbath does more than that, right? Sabbath, has forced, Sabbath forces us to slow down and reveal what our idols are. Maybe some of our idols are work. Some of our idols are busyness. Maybe it's status, competition, envy, right? Anything can be an idol. But what Sabbath does is force us to reflect on these things. Now, coincidentally, this past week, I had two reading assignments. And as I was, as I was reading my two books, I was looking at, you know, some of these quotes. And I was thinking, wow, like, this is exactly what I'm talking about in my sermon, right? My, my sermon was basically done. And then I, I, I come upon these two chapters in my book, and I'm like, okay, I have to put these in. And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to read two quotes from the same book, and it's called The Sabbath Experiment. And I want us to do is just close our eyes and kind of just reflect and meditate. You can open your eyes as well, but I just really want us to take in what the Sabbath is. Sabbath keeping reveals to us the limits to our control. When we see striving for a day, we are reminded that our creator God, the God who created the mountains and the plains, the sky and the oceans, and the flora and the fauna is the one who is ultimately in control. God is the one who keeps the world spinning in its orbit. God is the one from whom all good things come, and God is the one who will usher in the fullness of the kingdom. Sabbath reminds us that God is in control and we are not. Sabbath reminds us that ultimately all our strivings for control are limited. While we can't control some elements of our lives to some degree, much of life is beyond our control. So control, again, is a huge reason why we can't experience peace. And I'm, not, I'm not lying. Like This was after my sermon, and control was already a point on my paper or my sermon. The next quote that my professor says is, the, storm that rage, the storms that rage within do not have the last word. Sabbath can not only stir up, but can also be a means of calming the storms. The psalmist offers praise to God who leads me beside still waters, which is Psalms 23 two. Jesus brought still waters when a raging storm on, this, uh, on the Sea of Galilee threatened to sink the disciples' boat. He gave the orders to the winds and the lake, and there was a great calm, which is in Matthew 8, 26. The God who leads beside still waters, the God who calms the seas, is the God who can calm the storms within as well. It may be that we can only arrive at the state of being looking deep within and acknowledging the troubled waters. Sabbath provides context and prompting for this difficult work. You guys can open your eyes. So think about that, right? The Sabbath forces us to really dig deeper into what is taking up time. Why is it that we feel like we can't have Sabbath in the first place? The next way we can invite God is to stop acting as if we can, stop acting as if peace cannot coexist with our busy schedules. Right? When we believe that, when we believe that peace can only operate without busyness, without chaos, then we're saying that God cannot coexist in those realms, which is false. Inviting God into our busy schedules does not mean sacrificing everything that is keeping us away from God. Instead, it means reorienting your heart toward God in what we consider busy. So maybe work or maybe some you know, other responsibilities that you have. But by doing this, we will experience peace that is eternal, divine, and rejuvenating. 
Now, when we give up, you know, when we give up control and when we invite God into our lives, God is not telling us to give up total control, right? If I'm driving on the freeway, I am not going to put my hands up on the, put my hands off the wheel and be like, Jesus, you know, take control. Jesus, take the wheel, right? That, that's a saying. I'm not going to do that. There are some things that you should have control over of. But the bigger picture here is that when you're struggling in life, when you are frustrated, when you are sad, when you are stressed, when you're overwhelmed or when you're conflicted, those are things that God wants you to invite him into your life, right? Those are things that God is saying, Michael, invite me. Let me show you how you can experience peace when you're busy. Let me show you how you can experience peace when you're frustrated. Let me show you how you can experience eternal peace without having the need to go on vacation every week. Now I want to end with this quote, and this is another book called The Vulnerable Pastor by Mandy Smith. And again, I kid you not, all these readings were after I finished my sermon. And this quote kind of touches back on the Sabbath, but more so of what peace looks like according to God. As we embrace Sabbath practice, even if it begins with, lunch, with a lunch break, we will begin to see how it becomes abundance. The rest we receive from Sabbath will overflow into our work. The identity we embrace from Sabbath will overflow into our work. The peace we learn from Sabbath will overflow into our work. Not a peace without conflict, but a peace that sees God able to work in all things, even the conflict, a peace that trusts God can use us, even our failures. This is a peace that he works in ways we can't see, that he provides our needs, that he longs even more than we do for our hearts and communities to thrive. This is a peace in fullness of God's presence. Mandy Smith hits the nail on the head here and says, this is the peace that we're going to experience, a peace that is full, a peace that we can experience in the middle of conflict, a peace we can experience even if we fail God, right? So again, we can only experience peace if we're willing to trust God, because if we don't trust God, none of this matters. Honestly, it doesn't, right? If you need to have faith in God, that comes from trust, right? We need to trust in God to have faith. Our whole, you know, us being Christians is trust, that we trust that God is going to work in our lives. The second thing is that we need to be able to relinquish or give up control to God in the areas where we feel like we can only do ourselves. Whether you're struggling with a friend, whether you're wrestling with work, or there's maybe family conflict, give that up to God because God is more than willing to walk alongside you beside still waters and show you what it looks like to experience peace in these moments. And that third point is to invite God into your life so you can experience peace. Invite God in the areas where maybe your heart is closed. Invite God in the areas where you feel like you have pride in, that you want to do yourself. Invite God in those areas, and I promise you, God will, one, break down those walls. He will break down your heart to show you what it truly means to invite God, to show you what it means to have eternal peace. So what is our weekly challenge for this week? Our first one is to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 56 daily. You can read the whole thing. Um, there are some parts you can skip if you want to more so go with what I wrote. But then again, just read, the, read that passage daily. 
The next one is to identify areas in your life where you need to give up control to God. Again, look at your life. Maybe it's having control over conflict, having control over your future. That's a huge one, right? Give up control to God and let God know that I want to submit myself to you to experience peace. And, then, and the last one is to choose one day this week to be your Sabbath day. It does not have to be a Sunday. It could be any day where you're free, okay? Be able to reflect. When you take a Sabbath, reflect, what is it that is making you uncomfortable about not doing work? What is it that is making you uncomfortable about not doing something that you're used to doing? And then glorify God in that moment of silence or relaxation and be able to worship God in that. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to just thank you for um, giving, uh, providing us you know, insight on how peace looks like to you, God. That when Mary was going through a very unideal situation for her at the time that she was able to be at peace with herself, be at peace with you, God. And I pray that when we look at the story of Mary, that we're able to just understand what it looks like to give up control, to invite you into our lives. That we are reminded every day that we can speak to you, God. That we can pray to you. That we can worship you. We can praise you every day. I pray that for those who are struggling with feeling at peace, especially during Christmas season where it tends to be more stressful, that we're able to slow down and reflect. We're able to meditate and identify what is it that is making us so stressed and being able to give that up to you, God. I thank you that, for just God, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to also speak because all glory goes to you, God. That I'm just so thankful to call you, call you Father, call you our, our Father figure, our Dad. And for the rest of us as well, I know we're so thankful that we can praise a God that is so loving, that we can talk to a God that when we fail, you're gonna reach out to us immediately and not let us drown. And I pray that as we go on through this Advent season that we are reminded of why we celebrate Christmas. That we are reminded that Christmas is not about the presents. It's not about the family gatherings. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's because of the birth of Jesus Christ that we're able to experience joy, peace. That we're able to experience all the seasons of Advent. God, the fourth of four um, aspects of Advent that we're able to just worship you because of the birth of Christ. So I pray that we're just able to walk out of these doors feeling peace with ourselves, God, that we can have peace within you, within our lives, and through, our, through the hardships or obstacles and what we face, God. But just thank you for allowing us to experience and feel that, God. And I want to pray these things in your name.